Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Very excited to have a conversation with my guest today. She is a burnout prevention leadership coach, trainer, and organization organization consultant. I have with me today, Caroline Donnelly. Hi, Caroline. Hello, how are you? I am doing well. How are you? I'm good. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'm going to start with you like I do all my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? Yeah, so I deal with the work-related parts of burnout. So looking at um, how that leader uh, is doing uh, with their uh, burnout and then being able to talk to them about what it is that they are doing with their teams to kind of help their teams uh, um, be burnout resistant. And then looking at the organizational structure as a whole and saying, okay, so what things might be in this organization that might be really causing uh, folks to burnout. So I deal with all of those work-related pieces. Okay. So let's start with you defining burnout for us. When you're talking about burnout, what does that mean? Yeah, really, really good question. So according to the World Health Organization, um, it is a... um, it is a workplace phenomenon is what they call it, um, specifically around how it is that, um, that fo- folks show up, they are emotionally and physically exhausted, um, uh, and they are uh, cynical about work. They might really begin to think that they are not successful. All of these things are kind of like thought processes that are happening, and it's really stress that's really been unmanaged for a long period of time, so it's chronic. Uh, not something where you kind of feel like this, you know, one day or two, but it's something that's happening over and over and over again. Um, so that's kind of how I, how I define burnout. Awesome. So I know that we're going to be able to dive into some really rich conversation around the ways it can look and the many ways that it shows up um, in people's lives. But first, I'm I'm curious how this became a passion or, um, you know, how did this become a labor of love, something you dedicate so much time and energy towards? Oh, such a good question. Um, you know, I, I, I say that I am a recovering, you know, overachieving burnt out leader. And I say it that way because of the fact that that is the truth, that that is the way that my story has gone. Um, I actually started uh, uh, after college, I uh, got my first job and I was so excited and I moved up the ranks and, you know, became a leader and, um, and all of those things was doing, doing all the things, right, um, that I should have done. I uh, got a promotion and um, then started taking an hour and a half commute. Uh, and then started feeling really crispy because there was a work mismatch. Um, my talents and skills and the job that I had, they were mismatched and wasn't working. And, um, and I found myself uh, not being able to sleep at night, 
um, not being able to concentrate at work, um, I was fried crispy. Uh, and so my boss did as many dutiful bosses do and say, well, you know, I don't think that this is a fit. I think maybe if we sent you back, then maybe that would be a really uh, good, good, better fit for you. So I went back um, and that was no longer a fit. Um, it just, it just wasn't, uh, wasn't working. And I knew that something was wrong when one of my employees kind of came to me and said that he was experiencing some physical um, stress-related symptoms. Um, and I did what I thought every dutiful boss does. And I said, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry that you're experiencing that. Please take all the time that you need and let me know what I should do, um, what I should do, you know, what, do I, what I could do to help with that, right? Uh, and, um, and then, um, yeah, and then a couple months later, I, I kind of left that position. That particular scenario stuck with me because of the fact that I, I knew that I hadn't handled it the best way that I could have. And as I encountered that burnout, I kind of came to a realization over my career, overseeing other leaders kind of go through burnout, deal with burnout with their, their people, that leaders didn't have what they needed in order to actually handle burnout correctly, and that organizations actually weren't dealing with burnout. So that's kind of the reason why my passion kind of got spurred. Gotcha. So it was your own experience, which is not uncommon, you know? Yep we have these experiences, we go through them, we learn ideally as we navigate our ways through them, ideally do some healing and some work. And then it's like, oh man, I'm not by myself, yes. which I think is one of those myths that chronic stress, trauma and things would have us believe it's just me. Oh yeah. Um, and the litany of narratives that rear their heads when we are experiencing things like burnout and chronic stress. So as we start talking more specifically about burnout, what's interesting to me is it is a term that has been used that I've heard a lot in the mental health field. So as I've worked in the mental health field in different capacities, I've heard the term burnout a lot, but it really does. Ha and I think as I was you know, working in this field, it felt like a phenomena, if you will, that was exclusive to our industry. What mm. I now know is that's just not true. It's everywhere. Yeah. And if it is in fact everywhere, it's not exclusive to helping professions or education or business. It has this very pervasive nature. What are some of the key elements that you found in your work that are you know, if someone is listening and they're like, yeah, I've heard that term before. I think I kind of know what it means, but like, how do I know if this is what's happening to me? What yeah. are some of the things you would tell people? Yeah. I, you know, honestly, you know, one of the things that, that I would say, and I kind of point, I point to it because it's some of the elements that we actually don't think or talk about. And it's primarily like, if you are in a work culture where um, the workload is, um, uh, and when I talk about workload, I mean, I mean like you know time 
timeframes associated with workload, the actual amount of workload, resources associated with workload and things of that nature. If it is beyond the capacity for which you are able to um, uh, deal with and handle and it's happening for a prolonged period of time, that kind of coupled with a couple of different other things, right? Your feeling of control or lack of control uh, in um, uh, uh, being able to like speak up and, um, and advocate for yourself, um, uh, thinking through, you know, um, values mismatches, or even in my case, right, the mismatch around, uh, you know, my particular skills and abilities and the actual work that was happening uh, in the organization. Um, if there's a mismatch around fairness and, um, um, and even rewards, right, um, whether or not you're being acknowledged for the work that you are doing. Um, all of those things kind of uh, uh, are the things that, um, that kind of come together that are kind of risk factors for burnout. So you're kind of having that on the work end and then it kind of coupled with, you know, things like the emotional and physical exhaustion that I talked about. And that kind of comes up in all kinds of ways where folks are, um, you know, insomnia, right? Um, and you're not able to actually turn off the treadmill that is kind of happening at night and you are processing through all of the 50 million and one things. Um, you know, all kinds of things like that. Your, um, uh, you know, your, your actual body begins to react to it, right? So lots of people kind of have, you know, IBS issues, right? Um, irritable bowel syndrome issues, all kinds of things, high blood pressure, all of these things um, might begin to kind of show up in your body because of the fact that your body is trying to uh, deal with the constant stress that it might be under. So, Thank you. And as I listen to you talk, and then I think about the the pleasure and uh, word I can't think that just left, but the, the 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 joy that I get working with so many different people. I heard you talking, and so many people would hear that list of things, and they go, "Well, of course that's my life, but that's just life, right?" So there is this this pervasive belief in our culture that everything you just named. Well, that's part of life, honey. Like, and, and I hear so many narratives around what people would call the realities of the work world. Um, I mean, that's just what it is. You're not always going to have a job you like. You're not always sometimes. And it's, it's, it's disheartening because I do believe that we, with these deep, deep, deep roots in exploitative capitalism have been culturalized and conditioned to believe that everything you just named is just part of life. It's, it's what has to happen and you figure it out and how our brains have developed this way of coming up with convenient narratives for explaining away all of the things that you just said. And we will find ways to oftentimes minimize the impacts on our physical bodies on our mental capacities, on our emotional state, on our relationships for the sake of this is just what I have to do. I mean, I have to feed my family. I have to work. And I don't, I'm not minimizing any of those things as the very, uh, the reality of the world we live in. But to hear you describe all of those things as a condition that you're calling or that's called burnout is very different than I think some people 
um, are accustomed to hearing that. So I'm also hearing from you that there's like a, a, a multiple pronged approach to this. There's what the individual person can do to recognize and begin to mitigate some of the um, impact of burnout. But then there are some organizational things that also need to happen. And that's the part that I really want to talk about. So let's talk about the individual for a moment, but really hone in on this, this, this responsibility of the organization to address, to recognize, address, and mitigate burnout in the people working for them. Yeah. So um, the reason why I'm, I'm kind of uh, focused on the leader part of this whole thing uh, um, when we talk about the individual is because of the fact that the leader is the one that is able and the leaders in the organization are the ones that are most able to impact change uh, in the sphere. Right. Um, and in order for them to be able to actually make a difference, they have to be able to deal with their own stuff first, right? Because there are many leaders that are out there that are crispy, crispy, crispy. And if you are crispy, and to your point, you assume that, well, this is just the way that it is. I mean, like, it's pay your dues, make sure that, you know, you're climbing the ladder. And it's just, I mean, it's just the way that it is. And you literally see like everybody else is running on the treadmill. So you assume that I should be running on the treadmill and my people should be running on the treadmill. And so we have to start with the leader first and getting them to a place of uh, both acknowledgement and health around burnout. Um, and then from that leadership perspective, they are able to look around themselves and be able to have some self-compassion for others, be able to set boundaries for themselves and their teams. Like all of those things begin to happen because you've dealt with, you know, the leader and their, 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 um, their stuff. Um, and, and then from that per, per kind of place of thinking, they can then begin to think about um, the policies and uh, the actual practices in the organization that are creating the conditions for which burnout exists in the organization, because an organization is, um, is made up of people, right? It's made up of leaders. And if the leaders are, uh, are such that they don't have healthy boundaries, they're running on the treadmill and think it's normal, you know, all of these things, then of course, they're going to make the decisions that perpetuate this. So that's kind of my approach. Yeah, I, I agree. Thank you for sharing that. And <clears throat> I, I conceptualize the work environments, particularly in the way you're describing it as a family. I think people who haven't taken a moment to explore their own belief systems around hierarchy and work can begin that self-exploration by thinking about how they conceptualize family and family roles. And oftentimes, parents don't recognize the impact that they have on their children by surely how they live their lives. So I think a lot of parents are able to recognize the impact they have on their children by what they explicitly teach them, what they, uh, the rules that they have in their homes, um, how they discipline their child, how they reward their children. But one of the underappreciated ways in which we teach our children is by how we live our life on a regular basis. And 
I recognize this as a parent when my child was my first son, my son was very young. And I remember someone sneezed and he said, bless you. Like even before you could really understand what he was saying. And in that moment, it was such a fun, it was so bizarre to me because I had never sat my child down and say, okay, if someone makes this sound, this is how you respond. Mm -hmm. He just heard a sound and he responded. And it was really that moment when I realized he was absorbing more than I was teaching him. He was absorbing what I was doing Mm -hmm. and that that has some significant, that was going to have impact. I didn't necessarily know how I was not a therapist at the time. I, I was just like this, this is interesting. And the same happens at work. Yeah. So when, when a person in a leadership position never takes a lunch, yeah, never, um, not answers the phone, never leaves at the time they say they're going to leave always those, those things teach those who are working underneath that leader the expectations. It doesn't matter what the policy says. Doesn't matter, you know, what the handbook says. They're like, how can I leave after an eight hour workday if my boss always stays late? And then we begin to almost moralize these very detrimental habits and then we start going, I noticed this in, in, the, in the social service helping world that over and beyond has become the new basic job expectation. Yeah. And someone who actually does their job, I mean, does their job is looked at as a slacker. Yeah. So I remember going to the organizational leader saying this, this can't be it. This ain't it because now to do your job me and over and beyond becomes this badge of honor, but over and beyond at work means something. It means the opposite at home and in your other relationships. So do you find a lot of pushback from leaders as you begin? I'm assuming people are coming to you to do the work. So maybe that that's one thing, but what kind of reception are you getting from leaders who are stuck in these patterns like everyone else? Yeah, so so one a, a couple things that I, I just want to say um, uh, is is that part of the problem that we have is think is is leaders thinking about this as like a family in a way because of the fact that their family dynamics might be dysfunctional, um, and that dysfunctionality then translates into the way that they are treating their employees and making their employees feel like, well, you are like a child. And so therefore I will speak to you in such a way that you, you know, you have no, um, there, there is no autonomy because I can't trust you. You know what I mean? I must tell you every single thing that you need to do. You know, all of these things begin to filter into the way that they begin to show up um, uh, in uh, in organization. And so I would say that, that some of the pushback that comes, uh, first pushback that comes is around even the thought around, you know, how it is that we deal with burnout, right? Um, many organizations really feel like, well, you know, we've provided some wellness programs and we have, you know, yoga programs and we've, we, we have a, a, you know, a soccer field on the, on the roof for them to go and, you know, do that at any time and everything. And, you know, we have a meditation or all of these things, which are great, 
no issue with them. Go, go forth and conquer. However, um, back to the things that I talked about, right? This, the, the yoga room and all of these things are not helping me with my, my, my workload, not helping me with the fairness issue that I'm dealing with. You know what I mean? And so therefore, you know, a part of the challenge is being able to help them to be able to acknowledge the real deal of what it is that is causing the burnout. And I think that the, the way that we kind of get there is really being able to look at, you know, what does engagement look like and what's that costing you? What is the retention piece is costing you that is, is really detrimental to you um, as a, a leader and as an organization? So, you know, being able to get at it that way. And then what's it costing you as a person to continue to live this way? You know, what is it, um, what's it costing you that you don't want and that you want, you want to be different? So, yeah, I, I could imagine, I hear that a lot. Um, as I work organizationally as well in a different capacity, but very similar. It's almost like, look, we've provided every opportunity we could for people to take advantage. And if they don't take advantage and it's like, ooh, 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 right. Let's explore the belief under that. Right. You know, it's, it is, it is not different than how um things are talked about in many different oppressive relationships, Yes, right? And so when we start to overlay that and say, hmm, let's look at this through a lens of oppression. Let's, let's, let's explore your verbiage, your language, your belief systems around this thing and, and helping people to understand that there is this, well, look, I provided it. And it, it almost gives a way out for people to say, look, we tried everything we could. Yeah. We've tried this, 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 but what we haven't done is like, um, like you said, workload. Have we looked at that? And this expectation that a person who is given a very uh, disproportionate workload, disproportionate to time and qual- and all of that, that if they can't accomplish it, somehow the fault is them. Yeah. It goes back to the fundamental, one of the fundamental reasons why I don't diagnose in my practice because diagnostics and and diagnosing through the DSM takes very appropriate real responses from people in systems of oppression and challenge and it pathologizes their response instead of looking at the system itself and so to say that a person who is highly anxious is the problem when every single system they encounter from their family system, their work system, you know, all of these things are actually stress inducing, but we're going to say they have the issue, but the system gets to persist as it does. Nope. I, I, nope, 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 nope. (laughs) So in my small ways, I'm like, "Mm, we're not going to do that. Let's look at the system. And you see it in every aspect when I am working with teachers and they keep talking about the one key, like, and they just can't get it done. So have we looked at what we're asking them to get done? Like the best use of my time for you is not to sit here for you to talk about how this kid is not somehow living up. Have we looked at the expectations? Have we looked at the resources and support in order for them to meet it? Let's have that conversation. And in those conversations, what ultimately comes out is that the teacher has not been given Mm. the resources and the support. And so it is very much this trickle down effect that is happening 
that the expectations that are being put on one group of people by some leader is mimicking almost exactly the way they are not receiving the support. And in some ways that makes so much sense to me. You can't give what you don't have. It's never been given. It's never been modeled. So how, how is the expectation that you do it? And so let's start there instead of this child or this employee or this, whatever is deficient. We have to go, "Mm, let's look at how the well is empty. (laughs) This there, and there is an organizational responsibility in order to provide the resources necessary for people to do their jobs so they can do them. What does that look like when you're working with an organization? What are some of the things? Yeah, so so um, one, when we think about this whole piece about what is provided, right? Kind of going back to, you know, well, we provided the this and that, you know, well, who did you ask about those things that were provided, right? Um, because if we are not asking the people who are the closest to the work, right, if we're not asking the employees and getting their thoughts and take on, you know, um, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know, the reward systems, right, right, that are being uh, implemented, right, if, if you are giving them um, time off, say, for example, and time off is good, no, no qualms about time off, but if, you are giving them time off when the reality is that, you know, time off plus a, a, a pat on the back every so often and telling me that I did a good job and, you know, I appreciate you, you know, if you don't ask them what it is that they're looking for, it doesn't matter what you give them because it's not going to be the right thing. And so mm-hmm. I think getting people involved in the conversation around what it is that is both the challenge and also what's the solution? Because you would be amazed at what people come up with if you just ask them. I love that. Like, I, obviously y'all can't see me, but I was over here like, yes, right? And, but I, I also think that goes back to this idea of how people view family. So many adults and parents do not believe that children are autonomous human beings. They are these things that you raise until a certain point, at which point they need to have autonomy and be able to make decisions, do all these things that you didn't help them develop. They need to be able to do that. And then they are often shamed when they can't. But to ask a child, what do you need? And know that like a lot of times they have an answer. Now we might not like the answer. (laughs) That answer, sometimes it's so simple. You're like, that's it. Oh, wow. And then other times it's like, oh, that takes more time, money and effort that I'm intending to spend there for. But I love that. So people are providing and again, they go, we've tried everything. You've tried everything you thought of. You haven't even actually begin to hit the, the threshold of the things that would actually be beneficial. So I love that. I also think that it is so interesting um, how some organizations figure out what their methods of like reward and things are going to be. And sometimes I see them or people talk about them and they're like, I don't want this. You know, I don't want this symbol. Actually, if you would have like, if you would have just told me, if you would have validated my hard work, that would have been enough. So people go and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and all they needed was words of affirmation. 
on the other hand, sometimes you, you tell people they do a good job every single day, but you're working them seven days a week. So like that, that balance and figuring that out is, is so huge. Um, Are there other things that come up for you as we kind of talk about what is helpful organizationally? Yeah. One of the things, and uh, I don't know whether that's just because I'm a, uh, I'm a research geek. And so therefore, you know, I want to be able to know what's the numbers, right? Give me some measures, metrics. Um, and I think that being able to figure out like, where are we starting from and what are the people saying, what um, uh, not only about what their needs are, but about the, uh, the challenges and things of that nature, being able to, um, to look at what you're already measuring that's telling the story that you need to listen to. Um, and then being able to not just give lip service to, oh yeah, yeah, we did an engagement survey and um, it told us X, Y, and Z thing. And what are we doing about that, right? Um, And so not just having the measures and metrics in place, but also then being able to take that and do something about it. Because oftentimes in organizations, we have the metrics, but we're not doing anything with the data that we receive. And after a while, people get get to the place where they're they're not even giving you any feedback anymore because you know you're not going to do anything with it and so really being able to um to lean into the data that you're already collecting or um start over (laughs) um by um by having conversations about the data that you will collect and what you will do with that data uh in order for you to be able to begin anew and and kind of move forward on, on um, the footing that uh, we're, we're, we're wanting to hear your voice and we, this is what we will do, a commitment around that. I, I experience that so much organizationally. People are like, I'm, I mean, what's the point of telling you? What, what's the point of giving you the data, the feedback, the information, you're not going to do anything with it. I've also found that people in general are very reasonable in their expectations. I don't, I have not encountered a lot of people working with organizations um, where people are saying, I want it now, I want it fast, and I want it perfect. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, I want to know that I am heard. I want to see you put forth some effort and I want to see consistency. And when those things are lacking, then it's, it's, people start to um, move into survival mode yeah. and whatever form that takes for them. And the culture of the organization begins to be that of one of people in survival mode. It becomes transactional instead of relational and all of these different things. And so I love that. I've also found that in back to this relationship dynamic, that as children, subconsciously we learn how to appease our caregivers and parents Mm -hmm. and then we develop attitudes behaviors and all of those patterns in order to satisfy our parent because they're directly connected to our survival it's Mm -hmm. not a conscious thing we just learn how to do it if our parent values you being seen not heard we learn how to get quiet or if our caregiver seems overly stressed, we learn how to step it up and do those things. That happens in the work environment too. Mm-hmm. And it's oftentimes that I have seen people moving towards burnout, not even just because of the sheer requirements of their job, but they're trying to ease 
the weight and responsibility off of a, a supervisor or a leader that they genuinely care about. And so they find themselves working extra, working hard, doing, doing the things because they are trying to, well, that or sometimes incompetence in the leadership position. Mm -hmm. So they're like doing all of these things to, to kind of mitigate that. Do you find that in your work as well? Indeed. And actually it's funny that you bring it up because of the fact that a part of the work that I am doing is kind of that, uh, I call it leader as instrument, right? <laughs> um, where, you know, we kind of take a look at, um, at some of the things that get in the way of the leader actually um, doing what they need to do. And this shows up in individual employees as well. So it might be to your point that uh, the leader or even the individual employee has a strong people pleaser, you know, kind of, um, uh, we call them saboteurs according to uh, the positive intelligence um, a kind of framework, um, but they have like a, a really strong uh, people pleaser um, uh, uh, part of themselves, uh, or they might have a, um, a part of themselves that is really like uh, more of a perfectionist. So it must be a certain way. And so therefore, you know, I need to be able to stay in control to be able to, to make sure that it is this way. Um, and regardless of where that shows Showing up as in, if you're in the leader seat or you're in the employee seat, it's detrimental to the whole situation. Um, uh, and, and, and all kind of um, uh, spurred along by that stress response that you're talking about, where I'm feeling, I'm feeling stress, I'm feeling like something's about to go off the rails or is not going to be good. And so therefore, I am going to step in and do X, Y, and Z in order to make sure that everything's okay. And, you know, and all of those things. And I think that, um, I think that that is one of the aspects uh, that I actually, um, you know, unpack with leaders in order to be able to not cause a contagion effect uh, that begins to happen where that leader, you know, their controller is in the driver's seat, right? And it's making it so that their employees, people pleasers start showing up and it becomes this thing where they're feeding off of each other and they don't even know it. And so therefore um, getting at the root of that so that then there is awareness on the leader part and then the leader begins to think about how their people are then showing up in response to them. I love that. I love that. Um, not unsimilar, <laughs> dissimilar to what I do with families. Um, and another thing, and I can speak to seeing this so much in the, the helping profession and, and things, but I am, I'm sure it's not exclusive to that. It's also how leaders are selected and promoted and advanced. Okay. Y'all, y'all couldn't see or make a face, but I did. Like, mm. <laughs> so what's so interesting is a person has a job and their job is to do X, Y, and Z. And this person is really good at doing X, Y, and Z. And all of a sudden, organizational leadership goes, we're going to promote this person because they're good at doing X, Y, and Z. Not realizing that once you promote them, X, Y, and Z changes. So they were, in fact, really good at X, Y, and Z. But now we at GX and I, they're 
and and then there's no additional support, training and resources given to that same promoted person to now do a completely different job. Just because you were good at a job does not mean you're good at motivating, coaching, and helping other people to do it. It just meant you were good at that. And that's not to knock the person that's being promoted, but it's because promotion in a lot of um, organizations is the only way that people are validated oftentimes, then they're seeking promotion, not because of the actual work that the promotion will do and their skill sets directly associated with it, but because they want to be validated for doing good in that job. And so you see leaders who are not very effective in their jobs because they weren't taught how to be a leader. They were just advanced at doing the job. So I'm going to stop there and let all of your nonverbal facial expressions that I'm seeing uh, give you a space to put words to those. Yeah. (laughs) You hit the nail on the head because I think that, um, I think, I think that there almost needs to be a track for really amazing um, uh, uh, technicians, right? where you can continue to be like amazing, awesome and continue to move up a certain ladder. And for those people who are both amazing technicians and also have the people pieces and components that you just talked about, then those are the people that move into these leadership tracks for which we, you know, we kind of have more and more of that, that piece because you know how to, um, Uh, you know how to handle people and navigate those relationships and do all of that. And I think that we, we get in trouble um, when we have um, uh, and organizations get in trouble when they have um, promoted people beyond their competency, right? Because these people are very competent at what they can do. But when you've gotten them to this place where they're in no man's land um, and nobody Nobody teaches about like burnout prevention, right? I mean, that's not one of those leadership classes that you need to be able to take in order to make sure that you understand what it looks like for you not to burn out and what it looks like for other, you not to burn out other people, right? That's not a part of our organizational leadership development lexicon. So therefore, you know, it's in the water that instead, you know, this is just a part of the way that, that things happen. And so therefore just get with it and, and keep on, keep on moving. And I think that we need to be resourcing leaders uh, uh, better um, so that they are able to take care of themselves as they move through the ranks, be it with the burnout pieces and also take care of themselves with regards to what skills and abilities do I need to bring to bear in order for me to be the most effective leader for these people that I am charged with, um, uh, with, with, with leading. I agree so much. I also think it would be very helpful if organizations stopped um, disguising, putting three people's jobs into one position as a badge of honor. So along with promotion and advancement comes, oh, now this responsibility and this responsibility, and they're not related, but this person retired, this person got fired, we let this person go. And so instead of hiring another, we're just going to add more to different, and we're going to take all the jobs that this person did, and we're going to divide them among other people. It is so ineffective. It is so ineffective. I mean, if your kitchen was also your bathroom and was also your bedroom, it would not be a very effective kitchen. Mm. It would be a room and it would get a a lot of stuff would get done in there, but some things need to be separate. 
AKA your bathroom and your kitchen. And so, but I see it happening in organizations time and time and time again. And I also realize as we're talking, and I know this, like I have, I definitely have leadership qualities. I am not built to be what is in today's culture and society is considered a leader. I'm, mm -mm, I'm just not, no. Now, if you want to, if you want one person who is going to be responsible for loving on people, I'm your person. But if you also want the person who is loving on people to be the person who has to discipline the people and who also has to be the person who, you know, figures out a system for this product, that it just feels so inefficient. It feels so unfair. There is a part of me that feels like it is an injustice. So when I'm working with people from a therapeutic standpoint who are so stressed out at their jobs, And we're working through all of the childhood relational trauma that's being activated. This sense of, I am not enough. This sense of, I am alone. I am abandoned. I'm working with people through those things, but these things are being activated in their jobs because of how jobs are structured. And there is a part of me that feels is so wholly unfair and how much more successful the person in the overall organization could be if some of these webs got untangled. And, and by and large, why that's often hard is because profit comes before people. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and I, um, I think that one of the things that you're kind of bringing out is really this both, um, the thought process around job fit, right? Whether or not it's fitting the person and their gifts, capabilities, you know, all of the training, all of that. But it's also being able to stare at the job and say, you know, what's what components are a part of this job that um, that are still necessary, right? Because some stuff, it's it's kind of like, well, so-and-so retired and so we're going to give it to you. But we, we don't step back and look at it and say, well, is this still necessary? right? For us to continue to do, or is it not necessary, but, you know, we've just done it. And, and so I think that we need to be reevaluating jobs um, at different times and, 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 and reevaluating what is being done in order for us to be able to make a determination as to, you know, does it still make sense? And I think that making those key uh, decisions is that's the stuff that is really, really, really super important to then being able to understand what's on someone's plate, what needs to be on their plate, and what stuff we no longer need to have on their plate at all, right? Or someone else needs to do it because they are more capable and therefore are. And and when I say more capable, I don't mean that there's anything wrong with the person who has it, but they have the competency to do it faster, better whatever. And this person does not no shade on that person, but we just need to give it to, you know, we need to give it to them because they're the ones that can do it. Agreed. And I think along those same lines, when we continue to pile up a plate um, of one person or a few people, one of the first things that get, you know, fall off the side of the plate are things like creativity Mm. and joy and things that make life worth living. It's not just the uh, accomplishment or just the, the get the thing done, but the creativity and joy in which people are able to bring themselves into a job are some of the first things I see 
going away when more responsibility piles up. The way they were able to be relational with the people they were managing and supervising and that they knew what was happening in their family. I don't mean like your business, but they knew, oh my goodness, your child is getting ready to graduate high school. Oh my goodness. They started playing this game. All of a sudden there's no time. There is no time or space to be relational. There's no time or space to be human with other humans. And that's because so many of our organizations across all, no matter what industry are treating people like machines because our computers can run all day and continue to get the job done. And all we got to do is plug it in and work while it's plugging, you know, no time for recharge. We're starting to treat people that way. And it's so unfortunate because we are not machines. And at the end of the day, the body is going to remind you that you are not a machine. And that is when the unfortunate oftentimes occurs when it's no longer about the person. Oh, sorry, that sucks, but we're going to have to move on. Right. And then we realize that all of the ways we've sacrificed our bodies, our families, our relationships for the sake of the job, it doesn't become reciprocal. And that is where I see a lot of um, the exacerbation of a lot of mental health concerns with people who really did believe that their now sacrifice was going to eventually pay off. And when it doesn't, it is very devastating. Yeah. And it's interesting to me when you talk about that now sacrifice, right? You know, um, when it becomes, when it gets to the place where people are sacrificing their biological needs, like, can I go to the bathroom or not go to the bathroom? Um, Sacrificing, you know, I've been sitting in this chair for eight, eight hours and I haven't moved. And we know that, you know, that is, that is, you know, akin to almost smoke, you know, smoking so many packs of cigarettes, right? And so therefore, you're going to be doing some, you know, significant detrimental things to your body. Um, When people are not eating, um, and they're losing weight and losing hair. And I mean, like all of these things begin to happen. And that, that, that's, that, um, that's when we kind of, I mean, not even kind of, a line needs to be drawn and saying, this is not healthy. And I, and I, and I want to kind of like couple that by also saying that, and there are organizations out there that are doing like amazing, awesome stuff for which, why aren't we sitting and like under unpacking that, that, that piece and saying, dude, they are, they are both hitting the, the, the numbers that they are aspiring to. And they have an organizational culture that is healthy. And so what is it that we could learn from them and incorporate in ourselves? Yes, I know we're unique and special and everything like that, but we can still learn from others. And so how do we begin to, um, to do that as well? Yes, because they are, it exists. Yep. And it, you know, we live in such a binary culture that it feels either or, and it doesn't have to be either or like it can exist. And if we also live in a very competitive culture where it's almost like we ain't learning from them, they not even in the same industry. Like it's okay. (laughs) You know, it really is. Okay. But I love that. And when you talked about like sitting still equivalent to smoking so many packs of cigarettes, what I will say is taking take the smoke aside the nicotine tobacco away there was something very special about the smoke break 
Yeah. There was yeah. something very special about the smoke break yeah. that allowed movement, community, yep. and yep. deep breaths. Yes. So that's all smoking is. Big old deep breath, right? You take the cigarette away, you take the weed away, you take whatever the, the substance is away. That's what the body was getting. It was yeah. getting a deep inhale. It was holding it for a moment and getting a slow exhale. Our bodies crave that. People were getting outside. They were standing around having conversations. They were in community together. And so how do we reinstitute the non-smoke smoke break? Yes. How do we recognize that people getting together to just get fresh air, be outside, be around each other, talking about things non-work related actually is a healthy thing. And we don't have to attach with it something that's like detrimental to our health, but what does that look like? So the, I mean, I feel like that's one thing I talk to organizations about that all the time. What does the non-smoke break smoke break look like? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we get back to this thing, which I just think is important. Yeah. And I I love that you're bringing that point up because um, I actually forgot about one of the points um, uh, in the in the very beginning when I talked about those risk factors for uh, for burnout community is the other one. Right. And the lack thereof. And when we talk about community, right, it's the the whole human to human connection, just like you're talking about, where, you know, we get to know each other and therefore reduce the loneliness in organizations and loneliness that happens at work, where it's just like, I don't know anyone, they don't know me. And so therefore, again, that dehumanization where you know, you just simply become a body that goes and does the widgets. And that's all that I know about you. And that's all that I care to know about you. As opposed to, no, that's Mary Sue. And she's got two, you know what I mean? She's got two kids and, you know, and they do band practice and they do this or that and all of those things. And, and, um, and she needs to leave at four o'clock because the fact she's got to pick up the little, all of those things are the humanity parts that we need to keep in mind in order for us to be able to to do work well. When we lose the humanity, that's when we're in trouble. So much trouble. I agree so much. So Caroline, what do you do for yourself, right? We work in these capacities where we are working with people who burn out, who you know, have transitioned to these um, spaces that are not that healthy regarding work. What are some of the things that you're able to do personally to keep yourself as healthy as possible? Yeah. So I, the things that I love to do, I love the fact that you, um, you brought up the whole creativity space, right? And so for me, um, you know, I do a lot of sewing and knitting, crocheting, um, uh, artwork, I do stuff like that, not because I am very good at it, right? So I wouldn't say, oh, I'm an artist or blah, blah, blah. But no, I want to create a space where I can play mm-hmm. and where I, can, where I can put beautiful colors or something. I can make something beautiful for the sake of it just being beautiful. That's it. Um, I think that the other piece that I do is I, um, I have this deliberate uh, um deliberate, uh, deliberateness about some of the things that I do. Uh, there are weekends when I'm not booking the calendar. We have, I'm not going anywhere. We're not doing anything. I mean, and it's just, it's by design, Mm -hmm. nothing, 
we have nothing planned. And if we, if we want to go and, you know, take a walk in the middle of the afternoon or take a nap or whatever, we just do that. Right. Um, and then the next thing that I would say is, um, there, they have this thing called forest bathing, right? And it sounds weird, right? But what it basically is, is getting out in nature and allowing the awe of all of the beauty of creation and all of the, the trees and all of the nature, just taking in the awe of it all and just letting that kind of just, just I don't know, just be, be a part of you. And so I do, I do those types of you know, go out into nature and just see what I see and, you know, and just sit with it all, savor it. And so mm -hmm. that is what I do is I rest mm -hmm. and, and I savor and I just kind of, I, I don't pack my calendar. With stuff. Love it. I definitely thought some water was going to be involved with the bathing. So I was really intrigued. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, a li I'm listening. Tell me more. <laughs> But I, I, I now understand it to be the beauty of nature washing over you and not just that, but I love that. And thank you for sharing all those ways. I would say that I would call you an artist. I want for us to detach our ability to call ourselves a thing based on our perception of how someone else is going to perceive it and being able to own and say, I am an artist, though I used to describe it the exact same way. Now, every time I create, getting to the point where it's creating for creation's sake, yeah. not because I need somebody to be like, oh, that's nice. Or even I know what it is, <laughs> but just to be like this, this allowed what was in me to come out of me. And yeah. it was a form of discharge that, that I, 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 I honored myself and my body by being creative and for you setting intentional time to play. I love it. We are such a playlist culture. Mm -hmm. um, even to the point that we are minimizing play for our children. Mm -hmm. My heart aches that my kindergarten daughters only have like 15 minutes of recess. What? It takes 20 minutes for the different parts of our brain to go from one thing to the next, but you only give them 15 minutes of play. They're six years old. And so being having to be intentional and then I work all day and then they want to come home and play and there are parts of me like mm -mm, go sit down <laughs> I'm tired but having to realize like mm, instead of trying to get them to come to me I need to meet them in their play yeah. and so um th that's encouraging and man how can we get organizations to invite play into the organization yeah you know, laughter, playfulness can be so, so key. So I genuinely appreciate the work that you're doing um, because for me, it's organizational yeah. because organizations are just made up of a bunch of people. Yeah. And, and so the fact that there um, are people like you who are intentionally going into organizations, simply saying, how do we slow and reverse this burnout process is very encouraging. So thank you. Yeah. If people heard something that intrigued them, they want to know more about you and the work that you do, or they are like, oh my God, come fix my organization. How might they get in touch with you? So www.carolon, and it's spelled C-A-R-O-L-O-N hyphen Donnelly. D-O-N-N-A-L-L-Y.com is my website. So you can reach out to me there or on LinkedIn at the same name, Carolyn Donnelly. 
I appreciate you taking the time to just uh, tell me more about yourself and my listeners. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. You are so welcome. It was fun. Thank you. I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who provides the music for the Labors of Love podcast, and to my producer, Mr. Jay Suck from Instant Classic Media. And of course, to you, my listeners. I love y'all. I'm glad you were able to tune in today. Don't forget, if you want to get in touch with me, if you have uh, suggestions for content or guests, you can reach me at www.thelaborsoflove.com. Scroll down on the welcome page and there is a place for you to give your suggestions there. Don't forget we're on all the major social media uh, outlets. If you have not gone over and follow me on TikTok, y'all know I went kicking and screaming, but I'm there now. So go ahead and follow. Good stuff coming out multiple times a week. Don't forget our YouTube channel where all of the Therapy Thursday videos are held, as well as just some other videos that I do. And of course, give us that five-star rating, write a review, and share the podcast with your friends and loved ones. Until we connect again, you all be well.